This week on Hacker in the Fed, another insider threat attack. Cyber criminals use an old technique to steal cryptocurrency. And Hector tells an embarrassing story. Hector Monsegar was responsible for some of the most notorious hacks. Former ever. FBI Special Agent Chris Tarbell. Hacker turned FBI informant. Participated in some of the world's most infamous hacks. It caused up to $50 million in damages. A life in the shadows. Cyber attacks on the rise. Welcome to Hacker in the Fed. I'm Chris Tarbell, former FBI special agent, working my entire career in cybersecurity, and now a founding partner at Naxo. I'm joined, as always, by my friend and podcast co-host, Hector Monsegur. Hector's a former black hat hacker who once faced 125 years in prison for his many years of hacking under the codename Sabu. Our stories collided in June of 2011 when I arrested him and convinced him to work with the FBI. Hector is now a red teamer, researcher, and cybersecurity expert. Hector, how are things going this week for you? Yeah, no, it's pretty good. I can't complain. How about yourself? Ah, doing well, doing well. I uh, since the last we spoke, I uh, I won a big Super Bowl bet, so I'm happy about that. <laughs> I'm sure you are for sure. Uh, for those that didn't listen to last week, well, first shame on you. Uh, but Hector and I recorded the episode before the Super Bowl, and I took Kansas City. And Hector took Philadelphia. And for those that didn't watch, uh, Kansas City ended up winning at the end. A little controversial ending there, uh, but nevertheless, a big win for me. So uh, at the end of this episode, Hector is going to tell us an embarrassing story. And I'm super excited about that one. Yeah. You know what? I'm excited, too. It's always good to uh, to be able to kind of look back and, and think of, of ways that I've screwed up in one way or another. <laughs> you know, I, I don't look at mistakes as uh you know as as kind of like an indicator that I'm a terrible person or whatever um I like to look at uh lessons learned from those mistakes so hopefully we go through a fun story and kind of talk about it that'll be good I'm looking forward to it so you got to listen all the way to the end if you want to hear the embarrassing story for Hector to pay off his Super Bowl bet we made But Hector, we talked about a story a few weeks ago about a lady driving around Paris, and she had some sort of device in her car, and she was pulled over uh, near some of the embassies right there in in, in Paris, Uh, and it was a device that we weren't quite sure what it was. Some people thought it was an eavesdropping device or some sort of hacking device. Uh, I saw that there was an update. Can you give the audience an update on that story? Yeah, absolutely. To me, it's exciting. Um, and, and the episode that you referenced, we talked about it being an IMSI catcher. Um, and I think that one of the questions was, well, was this device used in targeting um, the embassy or the area around the embassy for the potential of stealing like secrets and so on? And I think for the most part, like InfoSec Twitter and a bunch of other researchers were kind of like, yeah, I think that's what that what happened. But you can never tell. Now, it just so happens that we have an update. On Thursday, February 16th, which is a few days ago, five men were indicted uh, for organized fraud after sending large-scale fraudulent SMS messages. I actually saw the update on Twitter. Shout out to Hacker Fantastic. Um, Definitely follow them if you're not. And so, you know, what we found out here is that there was an organized ring of fraudsters that would have someone drive around with this device in the back of the car, picking up any information they could about potential victims, and then using those victims to engage in um, in all sorts of fraud, including healthcare fraud. Um, fantastic. Uh, big shout out for the police out there for catching this group. Five of them were definitely charged. Three of them were remanded. The other two, we have no idea what's going on with that. But I'm sure as you kind of move forward in the story... Um, And we have some updates throughout the year. You guys will get more information out there. But I'll tell you one thing. The police over there so far have been able to identify um, at least 424,000 fraudulent text messages that were sent. And recipients were invited to connect to a a fake health insurance site to enter their personal information, including banking details. This um, update actually came from francetvinfo.fr. And we'll have a link in our description for this episode. Did they have any sort of connection to the woman that was pulled over and these five men, or is that still a question that's out there? That's a great question. It's still up in the air. 
Um, the latest information we have right now just kind of discusses the results of the fraud and the fact that five men were indeed indicted for the fraud. And I have to say that, you know, it's possible, right? This is where we could speculate for like 30 seconds. It's possible that these guys probably were part of a bigger ring and they just hired this woman, unfortunately, to kind of drive around with this device. Whether she knew or not what the device was doing, we have no idea. But the one thing I'll say here is that um, they've definitely invested a lot of money and time into kind of developing this uh, this operation. Interesting. I, I look forward to hearing more details about what comes out of this. So uh, we certainly will see. Oh, yeah. Same here. So, Hector, there is, uh, this is going to be a what the kids call or possibly you call a thick episode. There's lots of stuff going on in cybersecurity. Um, so I think we need to hit a few of the news stories uh, and see and let the audience know what's what's going on. So a little behind the scenes of Hacker and the Fed. So Hector and I spend the week sending stories back and forth to each other. Uh, hey, did you see this? Hey, did you see that? We sort of keep a keep a track of them. And, you know, then we, we put together the stories that we like for the episode for the week. And this week there is a ton of them. The first one obviously is a story that Hector sent over to me. Um, because he made the prediction at the beginning of the year that insider threats were going to be the biggest one. So, of course, Hector goes through and finds insider threat stories every single week that we can share with you guys. Uh, so another insider threat you sent to me, Hector. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll say, you know, just, just for the audience here, I, if you guys remember the episode, I did say I'm expecting to be wrong, right? Because ransomware is still very large, but... Nonetheless, um, I, I definitely had to share this story just because it's interesting, not because I'm trying to win a bet or anything like that. <laughs> so the headline is a former Credit Suisse employee leaks employees historic bonus data. So it looks at like Hector that a former a bank employee on one of their last days uh, went through the systems and shared out Credit Suisse's uh, personal information of some of their employees, um, including financial payments. Um, access to their personal data and uh, their time and daily work schedule uh, and uh, bonuses that they may have received. It looks like the information came from 2013 to 2015, so a little bit of a small piece. Uh, but again, again, another issue of you know employees that are allowed to have access, but we don't really want them to share it. Is is there an answer to this? That is a great question. So. A lot of organizations may employ systems called DLP or data loss prevention systems. Uh, some of these work very well. Some of these are, are rather archaic. Others will use behavior profiling and analytics, kind of like what you see in like a next generation firewall or antivirus or EDR type of suite. The idea here is that you want to mitigate the potential for sensitive files to leave a network or environment. We're not sure if Credit Suisse in this case had something like that or, you know, because of the way their network is uh, kind of organized, it may be an access control issue or, or it's the big or, the employee itself had access to these files because that was part of their position, right? So let's go on that assumption. Let's go on the assumption that they, they are allowed to have access to this. What can we do as either a small or medium business to stop our employees that have access uh, to, to the data that we, we need them to have access to for their job from going and taking that home and then sharing it on a blog or, or putting it out on, on some sort of social media. What can we do to stop that? That's a hard one. And I'm sure there, there are folks in, in our audience could, that could answer it better than, better than I. So please, if you do have this experience, please uh, definitely reach out to questions at hackerinthefed.com. So from my perspective, it's going to be difficult. It all depends on, you know, trust, right? This is a trust issue. If the employee in question, their position revolved around accessing, manipulating, or storing this data, then what can you really do aside from, you know, legal consequences? So the DLP, that, that's only allowing us to look back historically once the incident happens, once the data is put out there. That's only going to give us kind of who had access to it and when, right? Well, it all depends on the DLP software, right? I've seen some amazing technology, and I've seen some technology that, you know, uh, looks like they came out from the 90s, right? So depending on the DLP uh, software, depending on policies, it could either mitigate, completely block someone from trying to exfiltrate a file, or it could just log it down and make, uh, you know, a kind of a chain of custody for files, right? 
But if we had a system where an employee is, is allowed to have access, access to it, how does it lock it down and, and, and tell them, well, you don't have access to it now, even though you're, you're supposed to have access? Well, I mean, that's a great question. And again, it all depends on the DLP software. I'll give you an example, if you don't mind, right? So I remember doing an assessment against uh, a client that had DLP on their, on their employee workstations. I was able to open up files, right? Files that you know, supposedly were protected by the DLP. Now, if you try to attach that file into Outlook, for example, it would immediately block it and, you know, kind of give you a, a, a warning message that, hey, this has been reported upstream to so-and-so, okay? So the DLP, again, depending on the DLP software, is either going to mitigate and or log what you're doing with the files. But, I mean, and, and again, would that block someone from connecting a USB device to... Uh, laptop and moving from the, the the file system to the USB stick again depends on the software, right? Yeah, I remember years ago the U.S. Army had that problem, and, and their solve for the USB stick is they walked around to every single computer and squeezed crazy glue into the USB ports. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a great idea. Also, disabling USB devices, right? Crazy glue and, and or even uh, removing uh, those components from the devices physically, if possible. Uh, I, I've seen all sorts of things done to deal with this problem. If we look at a, a traditional Windows internal network with Active Directory um, and, and protocols like SMB, and we've talked about all of these things before in previous episodes, even if there's DLP software enabled on a network or on an endpoint, it still theoretically would be possible to access those files using alternate protocols. It, it's a problem that's hard to resolve. I mean, that's my point. And this is why I go back to saying that, well, this, this is very much a trust issue. Yeah, I mean, you're not going to stop employees from taking pictures of the screen unless we don't allow them to bring phones into their, their desk or that sort of thing. I mean, so that's going to be very difficult to stop something along, along those lines. Absolutely right. So not only are you dealing with, you know, the peripheral issue, we're dealing with network protocols issues, you're dealing with all sorts of different uh, um, ways to circumvent uh, technical controls or even access control issues, there's still going to be a way. And how are you going to stop employees from taking pictures of the screens? Like you said, are you going to block folks from bringing personal cell phones into the work environment? Unfortunately, it's one of those situations where there may not be a good solution without completely kind of closing down the workspace and work environment to the point that it becomes somewhat uh, difficult to even work. So let's talk about implementation of the DLP then. And, and, and this goes a little bit beyond the story. Let's just you and I talk about it. Do you think it's best to let the employees know what how the DLP works and the granularity of what, what records it keeps? Like, hey, we're going to know if you pull up file XYZ. Now, we might not know you take a picture of it, but we'll at least know you accessed it some sort of way. Uh, and that's how you're going to get caught, you know, trying to exfiltrate our data or share our data on, on social media. Or is it best to not let them know what the limitations are and just suspect that, you know, we're watching everything and have complete control of the data and we'll know anything you do with it? Yeah, well, I would say that even if you were to to tell them how the technology works or not, there still should be that forewarning. We will know if you try to exfiltrate data from our network, from our systems, from our IP. There will be consequences as a result of that, Right. That might deter some folks. It might even deter a large percentage of potential rogue employees. But you're always going to run into that 1%, that one person that just does not give a shit. And they still may just kind of go out and uh, and do it anyway. Well, as we sit here and talk about it, I, it reminds me of, you know, that, that Supreme Court leak, you know, um, where the, you know, they were overturning Roe v. Wade recently and it got leaked out, you know, weeks beforehand. And uh, they did an investigation and they still don't have a suspect on who did it. Um, you know, I would have just suspected that, you know, that information would be very well guarded. And the Supreme Court could have easily figured out the five or six people that had access to it. But it, it seems like they didn't or for political reasons, they're not releasing, you know, the details of that investigation. Well, if you were to ask me my personal opinion on that matter, I would think that. They probably, and I want to say they, I'm talking about the justices and, and, you know, their staffs. I would say that someone somewhere knows kind of what happens, but for political reasons, they're not kind of letting it out. Um, I think it might, it might hurt, um, you know, the Supreme Court more if they kind of said, yeah, I think, I think it was Joe Schmo that did it, rather than just letting it die. 
you know? Well, Joe Schmo is always my number one suspect. <laughs> yeah, right? So, yeah, I, I mean, I hope I hope we get more information about that. But, you know, I hope it's not just that their systems were that weak that they weren't be able to, you know, get it down to the, to the few people. But it seems very strange to me. I mean, the FBI investigated it. If it, the judicial branch to just say we're not going to release it or we're going to lie and say we didn't find it, I, I find that hard to believe. Uh, I, I'm going to guess it's a system lim- limitation, uh, but I would have hoped it was would, they would have stronger systems in order to realize who accessed what and when. Oh, yeah. And I would say that kind of jumping off of what you're saying, assuming there's a system limitation or there was not enough adequate logging um, or whatever it is, right? It was a technical issue nonetheless. Um, I'm hoping that uh, they start to ramp up moving forward. Um, that kind of internal leakage, whether it uh, was for good or bad or however you want to see it, that's irrelevant. Uh, something like that should not have happened regardless. Yeah. So, again, you know, 2023, as Hector says, the year of the insider threat. So we'll see. We'll we'll see if it happens and we'll see if he keeps sending me over stories every <laughs> single week about insider threats. <laughs> will do. Challenge accepted. <laughs> Perfect. So the next one, Hector, uh, it looks like that there's a repository of software for Python programming language, and it has been uh, discovered that there was an attack made on it, so a replacement attack. Can you tell me a little bit more about this uh, Python programming language repository? Sure. I mean, look, there is a central repo or repository called PyPy, um, spelled P-Y-P-I. Um, fantastic. It works very well. But here's the thing, right? Um the problem is going to be that it's possible for attackers to upload or malicious actors to upload arbitrary packages to that repository or to that central platform. And if the attacker, if an adversary is able to compromise a legitimate package, they would be able to modify that package. And anyone within the Python ecosystem that uses that package as an import would thus compromise their, their own project and, of course, compromise the end users. This is a classic supply chain attack, okay? In this particular case, we have a scenario where attackers were able to, you know, take advantage of, uh, of what I just said, and they were able to upload malicious code that would um, try to essentially replace the copy, uh, I would say whatever's copied into your clipboard, and then, you know, do some other iffy things, Right. Well, I mean, more specifically, it looked like what they, they were trying to do is if they recognized whenever a crypto wallet, you know, which is a very hard number to, to recognize, um, it's a long string of, of numbers and characters. Uh, if someone was to copy that into their clipboard, it would be replaced when they pasted it with the attacker's uh, crypto wallet. Meaning, so I want to go and I want to transfer money into my crypto wallet. I'm going to highlight and copy my crypto wallet, and then I hit paste and I hit transfer. I think, you know, control C, control V would have pasted my wallet. Um, maybe I'm not paying attention, but as soon as I hit control V, it actually pastes the wallet controlled by the attacker. It's an ingenious attack. Yeah, but it's also very old, right? Yeah. We, we've seen a lot of this stuff happen over the last, you know, 15 odd years where it wasn't necessarily a crypto wallet, a cryptocurrency address, for example, we would see it copy um, and exfiltrate credentials, right? Um, or even go beyond that and do key logging, right? So, you know, it's interesting to see that it's still very much alive, that it still happens. There are debates around this topic. There are those in the community, especially InfoSec Twitter and so on, that say, well, PyPy works very great. It, it works. But is there a way to kind of deal with this problem? Can we add some sort of integrity check to compromise code or projects? Even look at, look at this example with this story. It's not necessarily that the adversaries were able to compromise um, a known project. They were kind of iterating um, through project names and adding or deleting or substituting specific characters to confuse developers who may have typoed um, an import. You know, this is a hard problem to deal with. And there are ways that the PyPy organization and other central repositories for other languages could also deal with this. And unfortunately, we're going to continue to see this moving forward unless some integrity checks are made here. Yeah. So just to explain what Hector was talking about there. So the attacks they sort of did was was changing the names on unknown pieces of software within the PyPy repository. Uh, for example, if you let's say there's a program called Chris. 
uh, and it did something. Uh, they deleted a single character. And so my name is normally spelled C-H-R-I-S. They would have spelled it C-H-I-S and hope you didn't notice it. Or they duplicated a character and spelled my name C-H-R-I-I-S. Maybe you didn't notice that. Or they transposed two characters and spelt it C-H-I-R-S. You know, and, and this is sort of the attack, like Hector said. Uh, they, they've been doing this for years. But, uh, you know, this way, it, it, the way they were doing it, attaching it to a copy and paste of a crypto wallet, it looks like as the person would go into, you know, one of the exchanges, um, they did a legitimate transfer. Um, if the exchange goes back, it would say, you logged in. Here's your IP address. Here is your username and password. You passed two-factor authentication. Um, you, you sent this. Like it would, you couldn't see just doing like a crypto investigation what was wrong unless you go back and you look at the, the software that they on their browser and found this extension on the browser that did this and posted the bad guys, uh, sorry, pasted the bad guys thing in there. I, I think it's an ingenious attack. I know it's old, and, uh, but if you were doing like a, a crypto investigation, it would be difficult to find. Oh, yeah, I agree. Because, you know, not only from so, so from your perspective, right? And uh, I, I don't know all the, the methodologies that you guys employ in your end when you're doing an investigation on crypto issues um, or cases. But not only would you have to investigate uh, the, the blockchain in particular for the cryptocurrency that was, uh, um, you know, kind of stolen, but now you also have to do like a, an assessment of the endpoint, right? So now you're going into two different areas of research to try to identify where was the source of the compromise. It's very interesting stuff. And by the way, I just kind of want to add a side note here um, for all the Python programmers out there. Don't curse me out. Um, PyPy also stands for the Python Package Index. Just a heads up on that. <laughs> all right. Thanks. I'm sure they'll still cuss you out, but that's probably for other reasons. <laughs> but- yeah. But so, yeah, I mean, Naxo does a ton of these crypto investigations and, you know, just looking at it from the, you know, we would look through the laptop for a point of compromise, um, probably not see it. So this is another place where we're going to have to look to see, hey, what browsers do they have and what extensions do they have added onto that? And, and what sort of, uh, you know, what are those extensions doing? Um, it's good to know for us from the investigative standpoint. But, you know, again, it makes these these crypto investigations a, a little bit more uh, cumbersome. You know, and, and some of these guys that have been, you know, victims of the crypto to be victimized and lose a big chunk of your life savings and then have to, you know, pay for a, an investigation. Uh, it can be a lot. So, you know, these bad guys are getting very creative using old methodology on this new you know, uh, thing. Crypto. Yeah. Well, think about it like this, too. Right. I mean, just to kind of add to what you're saying, let's look at the fact that one, the attacker was able to get the initial entry over a supply chain attack through um, through that repository, okay? Okay. In this case, the attackers were focused more on, well, let's try to keep it simple. Let's just replace cryptocurrency addresses um, with our own. But theoretically, once they have that initial entry and they have access to your browser by means of extension, um, now there is potential for lateral movement. Assuming that the developers um, are not individuals and are actually part of a... Uh, cor- corporation or corporate network. Now we're talking about you know multi-stage or multifaceted compromise. Now it's an entryway to an entire organization. There's a lot of debates around you know uh, kind of this topic because now the question is, can we trust you know a, a central package index or platform? What does that do to the open source community? What does that do to the open source ecosystem? This is an open source platform. Um, that distributes open open source technology or software. So, you know, I love open source, and I think we could all agree that most of us use open source, uh, maybe 99% of us do. It sucks that there are bad actors kind of screwing around with the integrity of open source technology or platforms, but it's also a good thing, right? Because I, I would rather make a mistake to learn a lesson. If I can learn a lesson, great. And I think the lesson here and the takeaway should be, can we figure out a way to improve that Python, the Python package index so that now there's more integrity revolving imports. Um, can we create a system, and this might suck, but can, can we create a system where specific packages are known as authorized or um, you know, uh, have some sort of stamp that says, okay, this is a legitimate package versus unofficial packages that probably were uploaded by indie developer and or um, bad actors, right? So you have that choice. 
So maybe we put blue check marks on the on the good ones. <laughs> yeah, and you can pay five five ninety nine or eight ninety nine a month to uh, to secure its authenticity, right? <laughs> yeah. What about a gold check mark? What you pay a thousand dollars a month for? <laughs> oh man, you know what? Let's just get off this topic because we're gonna get absolutely flamed. <laughs> yeah, we're not getting political there, but blue check marks for everything. Let's go. So. <laughs> The next story, heck, that, that we saw was uh, hackers target U.S. and German firms monitor victims' desktop with screenshotter. So this is a uh, sort of a new recon methodology run by a hacker or a hacking group known as TA-866. Did you read about this one? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's fun read. Definitely interesting to see attackers kind of approach the same problem differently. Yeah, so the you know same methodology, same things going on. They're just doing it a different way. So apparently this new group which started around October 3rd of uh, 2022, started attacking via emails containing booby-trapped attachments or, or UL, U- URLs that led to, to malware. Um, and the attachments ranged from the, uh, the macro-laced Microsoft publisher files to PDF with URLs pointed at JavaScript files. Uh, and so the whole point was to get on and look at people's screen uh, and taking screenshots of their their with the victims' screens and sending it out to the C2 servers or sorry the command and control uh, in our world is known as a C2 server. Uh, that's sort of how the bad guys run their 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 machines or run their malware is from these command and control servers. Yeah, I mean it's it's, it's again it's one of those things that almost every threat actor group or threat actor itself would use in a scenario. They want the initial entry, just like the last story. Um, they want to get some sort of foothold, just like the last story. Um, but once they're in, what they're looking for goes beyond, well, is the clipboard, does the clipboard have a cryptocurrency address in it? No. What they're trying to do is determine whether or not they kind of want to move forward with the engagement. It's fascinating to see because imagine a scenario where an attacker compromises a thousand victims. And maybe eight of those victims are actually part of a corporate environment. So now it allows the attacker or the attackers or the adversaries to kind of prioritize targets based off what it is that they're seeing. I think it's interesting. They would probably have a lot of false positives, but uh, it's interesting nonetheless. So I saw that they were using um, sort of a what's called a traffic detection system or a TDS um, called 404 TDS that enables uh, the bad guys to only serve malware in scenarios where the victims meet a specific set of criteria like geolocation or browser application or operating system. You know, have, did you ever employ that in any of your attacks or have you seen other hackers uh, use that sort of thing to kind of like narrow down the their victims? Have I? No, but I've seen this a lot in, I mean, it's pretty common in malvertisement campaigns where an adversary or, or group were able to compromise, like, let's say, an ad or an ad network. And they'll create some sort of, of JavaScript function to identify some interesting you know, tidbits about potential victims, like where they're located, what's the IP address, what kind of browser they're using, what kind of operating system, et cetera, et cetera, just like you mentioned here. Um, and depending on whatever variables they fit or whatever they're looking for, then they will engage that specific target. We've seen this. Um, happening when, uh, especially in the early 2000s, and I would say early to late 2000s, where we saw a lot of zero days being used against browsers like IIS and Firefox, where attackers will have the zero day, they'll compromise the ad network, and then they'll deploy a strategy to you know monitor as much traffic as they could and identify juicy targets for themselves. This is definitely sophisticated. This is not like you know the the common scanning you see running across the internet as soon as you connect a laptop to to a network. Um, this is definitely much more thought of. But when they're when they're doing screenshots like that, you know, to identify their targets, that requires a manual review, right? Isn't that time consuming? Well, that depends. That really depends. With the, um, I would say, with the access to AI now, there are tools that would allow you to potentially categorize what's on the screen using, you know, machine learning or or some sort of AI algorithm. Um, I've personally seen this. I think Bishop Fox, the security company, released a tool as a proof of concept for this. But their tool is actually to identify screenshots and categorize what's in the screenshots specific to login pages. Now, if really? the app, yes, it's a great tool. Wow. Now, uh, but it's just a proof of concept. Big shout out sure. to them putting that research together. I personally have used it as a proof of concept. Now, so what does that mean? What that means is that if attackers were to take that concept 
and take a screenshot of a thousand compromised endpoints or desktops. Uh, theoretically, by creating um, uh, a data set around those screenshots um, and some manual intervention, they theoretically would be able to, they would be able to automate some of the identification process, right? For example, they would be able to identify a virtual machine slash honeypot scenario versus a very real endpoint or desktop being used by a developer. Let's, let's look at an example. So usually when you have researchers putting up honeypots, they'll deploy a Windows VM with some like Word documents and some PDFs, but that's it. The desktop is relatively bare beyond that. Now, when you look at a real developer's uh, desktop, you're seeing things like visual code or disassemblers or maybe access to like a 40 client VPN um, software. You're seeing other applications on that desktop or icons that may be, I would say, visually uh, identifiable from the taskbar. Now, when you compare those two screenshots together, side by side, you're going to say, well, the one on the left looks very bare. It might be a researcher's honeypot. When you look at the one on the right, more than likely it's an actual developer's endpoint. Um, Are you going to receive false positives? Absolutely. Will researchers change their methodology with honeypots moving forward? Yeah, maybe even after listening to this podcast. And I'm not going to assume this is not already being done by researchers. But the point is, if you're able to create a data set that allows you to identify a developer's endpoint over a honeypot, more than likely you're going to find some good hits. So yeah, this article had a couple of good things that I just want to pass on to the audience. They're saying that there's they're seeing a great rise in the proliferation of malicious Google ads leading to AWS phishing websites. So just to realize that's happening. Uh, and they're also seeing a spike in uh, threat actors using uh, search engine optimization poisoning, uh, malvertising, which we've talked about in the last couple episodes, uh, brand spoofing to distribute malware by packaging the payload as popular software, and then also uh, abuse of uh, the novel file formats like Microsoft OneNote and publisher documents uh, for malware delivery. So uh, if you're running a system out there, um, take a look at some of those things and, and make sure you're blocking against them uh, and realizing what's going on and how, how these guys are attacking us uh, to stay on top of it. Heck, the next story that you sent over to me, uh, surprisingly, was not an insider threat. Um, <laughs> it, it was titled, uh, Walk and Chew Gum, CISOs Communicating with Boards Have to Speak Their Language. And for those that don't know what a CISO is, it's a Chief Information Security Officer. Um, tell me a little bit about this. Yeah, so from my perspective as an offensive researcher and pen tester, red teamer, et cetera, when I'm doing an engagement, for the most part, um, I think I've seen a 50-50 split where I would be interfacing with the CISO during a debrief, or I will be interfacing with their security engineers or anyone kind of below the CISO. Uh, when I do speak with the CISO, it becomes complex of a problem where uh, a percentage of them are highly technical and they understand exactly what it is we're talking about in a debrief, or is a flip side. They really don't. And so it becomes difficult when we're communicating back and forth. And they're like, okay, so you found an attack path in Active Directory Certificate Services, and you were able to use, you know, one of those vectors as supplied by um, or as disclosed as, uh, by Spectre Ops to get access to domain admin. Great. Now, how do I communicate that with the board? And so for me personally, it's difficult because I would say 97% of my career has been on the offensive side. So now I have to go from speaking technical to speaking more on the business side of things. What are the business impacts of an attack like this? And so this article is interesting because now it, it, it not only recognizes that problem, but it also recognizes a problem with the CISO where now they have to also double translate that into a way that makes sense to the board and investors, people that actually help in making that executive decision to either offset or I would say expand the security budget to do more is securing the security posture of the organization, okay? Yeah, you know, this one was really interesting to me because so this is one of the things that we offer at Naxo is the the virtual CISO. Uh, and to be honest, we just got hired to do one this week. 
Um, so we're excited about working on that and, and doing that translation and, and making sure not only, you know, the, everything's up to date as far as policies and procedures, uh, the latest technologies being used and being used properly. But yeah, that translation from the technical side of the house to the guys that make the decisions and kind of pull the purse strings and be able to make that communication. So, you know, this article was interesting in that I didn't realize this, that in March of 2022, that the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, um, put out a proposal for a new rule titled uh, Cybersecurity Risk Management Strategy, Governance, and Incident Disclosure. Uh, and the par- the portion of this rule that's kind of interesting is that it's proposed the rule to requires board to disclose the cybersecurity expertise of their directors. So boards on companies have to tell how each board member w- knows about cybersecurity uh, and, and the risk associated with it. So that's interesting. Also, uh, in the same year, in November of 22, New York Department of Financial Services or New York DFS they propose a rule mandating that it regulated entities boards have or be advised by persons with sufficient expertise and knowledge to oversee expert cyber risk management. They're, so they're demanding that at least one person on the board has expertise in cyber risk management. So two interesting proposals here. I agree. And, you know, my um, I would say my takeaway, and by the way, congratulations on, on um, you know, that virtual CISO position. Oh, thank I, you. I think, honestly, my, my personal take here is that you will more than likely see more of that moving forward, right? So I think Maxwell will probably play a big role in that because, as we can see, uh, boards all across the country, we never talk about across the planet, but just across this country, as more mandates from SEC and similar organizations and agencies start to develop and are deployed, you're going to, I would say a lot of organiz- organizations are going to run into the problem, which is we have a lot of great board members. But how many of us are actually in the position where we actually understand what these risk managements or risk assessments or um, vulnerability reports or anything? Like, what does that stuff actually mean? And so you're going to run into problems. And you might even have organizations restructure the boards in some cases. Yeah, I mean, if you don't hire a good third-party vendor like like Hector to do your penetration testing, you're going to get this big report. And if no one on your board under, can understand it, it's a foreign language or it gets thrown off to the side. They don't really pay attention. They don't understand the risks that, that are being put out there. Um, you need a CISO that is able to to read that report and translate it. You know, it's almost like reading a foreign language sometimes. Yeah. And this is my message to the security companies and practitioners listening as part of our audience. Um, one way that I've been able to help CISOs kind of deal with some of these problems is to help them develop an attestation letter, um, some sort of documentation, even even just a one pager that kind of helps them explain uh, what was the purpose of the engagement? uh, What were the results? What are the likelihoods? I mean, are we talking about likelihood of compromise or are we talking about the potential for compromise and explain that stuff in a way that kind of makes sense, not only to the CISO, but also to these board members. Okay, because from that documentation, now they're able to kind of work on next steps. Well, what is it that we need to do now? Um, You know, kind of where we stand today. You know, I've been doing it. You know, my clients are happy. So any of you practitioners on the line here, you know, consider looking into something like that because it's going to help you not only with your clients, it's going to help your client look good, but it's also going to help you build long term relationships with your clients. Yeah, I mean, DFS and SEC putting these, proposing these rules and putting them out there, it, it really is, you know, it's it, it's sort of unique that they're saying that the cyber risk that, that these companies are facing is so important that they should dedicate an entire board seat to someone who can help manage the cyber, the cyber risk uh, to each company. Um, you know, the article also pointed out, which I, I, I guess I never thought about, is that there's more public boards than there are cybersecurity experts available to sit on them. You know, without doing the uh, virtual CISO, it's going to be difficult to, to fill every one of those seats. Oh, yeah, I agree. And that's why it kind of goes back to what I said. I think that you're going to see a lot more of this moving forward. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if other positions will start to be created or will be created as a result of um, some of these mandates. So uh, interesting stuff. And I'm glad that we kind of went over this topic because I think it's an important one. Yeah, certainly. We'll uh, again, we'll have the link to the story. Uh, there's some company takeaways in there that I think are, are really important, you know, including, you know, incentives to train cybersecurity experts early in the executive 
risk communication to providing better education and tools for people on the board to understand you know the cyber risks so yeah i think it's a great read and you know i think a lot of people should uh look that one up uh in our description so so the next one, Hector, in this thick episode of things going on in cyber, and maybe Phineas will dedicate the, this show, the title called Thick Cybersecurity. Um, <laughs> sure. Shout out to Phineas, our, our, our great uh, uh, producer. The next one is Four Misconceptions About Data Exfiltration. So uh, as a former hacker, um, I, I'm going to think that you know something about data ex- exfiltration. Yeah, I mean, exfiltration uh, is a major part of the uh, the compromise uh, life cycle or the operations life cycle for an adversary's perspective. Um, at, it, it, of course, it all depends on the purpose of the engagement, right? If a bad actor, an adversary, et cetera, want to compromise your environment for the purpose of ransom, then yes, exfiltration will probably be, I would say, the most important element of their engagement. If we're talking about like a script kitty or neophytes, trying to get a name for themselves by breaking into you know, a big website and defacing the front page, not so much, right? So it really depends. Yeah, so the, the people that aren't on the front lines like you and I may not realize they hear ransomware and they kind of understand that, that you know, someone breaks into your computer system and encrypts your data and then you have to pay to get that unlocked to get back access to your data. Well, you know, the cybersecurity community has done pretty well recently uh, about ransomware. And so these same guys are not only coming in and locking up your computer, but they're taking your data uh, and they're threatening to publish it. You know, so not only does the, the data sit in your system locked away so you can't use it, they've got a copy and they're going to put it out there. Um, in the first quarter of 2022, data exfiltration was involved in 65% of all cyber extortions. So all the ransomware or come in, you have to pay us to stop it. 65% of them included uh, the data exfiltration. And I, I think this is a, a growing number. I think 65% probably is pretty low uh, now a year later that, that most ransomware attacks involve some sort of stealing some of the data. One, to prove to the people that, that you have the data, uh, but also to raise the price and the value of, you know, the embarrassment of, you know, telling the world that you've been broken into. Oh, yeah. Now, imagine this. Imagine you are a bad actor. You compromise a large enterprise. You're able to exfiltrate their data and you attempt a ransom. The company comes back to you and says, no, we're not paying you. Okay. So now the, the bad actor has a couple of choices. One, they could just leak the data for the sake of hurting the brand and brand reputation of their victim. Or they could find uh, someone in the same space and say, hey, by the way, we have all these files related to your biggest competitor. What do you want to do? Okay. Now, in the U.S., um, I know it's difficult. I mean, it's, it's outright illegal for you to purchase stolen uh, uh, intellectual property. But that may not apply to other places. It may, it may not apply to you know, con- uh, companies around the world um, that may want to kind of even look at what the competitors are doing, right? So, yeah, it becomes a problem and is, is, is definitely, I would say, multi-staged. And I think the worst part is, and, and this, is, this is the crazy thing, don't, don't, definitely do not disregard this. And that is that there are ways to deal with the exfiltration problem. You have a lot of next generation firewalls and egress filtering. There's a lot of things that you can do from the defensive side to mitigate and or identify when an exfiltration attempt is taking place, assuming that you are the hoster and are in control of the data. Now, if you're hosting data on a third-party cloud service or something like that that's outside your scope, then it could be a bit more problematic to deal with. So, I mean, that brings up uh, the great one of the great points, the, the four misconceptions that, you know, the first one being we've got coverage. So, yeah, if you have one of these devices that, you know, uh, but it's not deployed properly or not configured properly, you're not going to have that coverage. You think you you bought something, you plug and play right out of the box, but you don't configure it right. You're not going to be told when data is being exfiltrated. Yeah, and you also have you also require or need some sort of human resource, kind of looking at logs and looking at traffic, which can be very difficult for like SMBs, right, small medium uh, businesses. Um, they may not be able to afford to have someone just staring at logs all day. But I'll tell you what, if there's two terabytes coming out of or flowing out of your network, um, you know, starting from like Sunday morning um, and nobody's seeing that, then there's a problem. 
Okay. Big problem. Yeah. So we kind of need to figure out a way to deal with that, um, whether setting thresholds, whether setting policies. If our traffic jumps more than five or 10 percent on an off day, that's a problem. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's something that a lot of organizations have to deal with. And they're already dealing with the ransomware problem. They're not dealing with exfiltration or even rapid recovery. There's a lot of organizations that have some sort of backup policy in place. But does that mean that they could still recover their business in 72 hours? And the answer, honestly, is, is no in most cases. Yeah, another misconception brought up in the article is that IT is security. You know, Hector and I have done uh, corporate speaking gigs for a while now, and this is one of the messages we get out there. IT is not security. People that work in IT are all about providing business solutions. They want to get your email to you as quickly as possible. They want to get your information to you as easily and quickly as possible. Security does not. Security wants to make sure you are you and that that information is only going to the proper person who is supposed to see it. It's sort of a conflicting configuration between the two groups, um, to be honest with you. Um, Now, some IT people can work in security, but it's a different mindset. It's uh, business continuity about versus business reputation uh, and data integrity. Yes, that is such a great point. I'm glad that you said that. And I wish there was a way for us to like highlight that point right there. Um, You know, we could scream it. Yeah, we could scream (laughs) it, right? Scream it outside the window, see who, who responds back. Um, but considering I'm in New York, I may get cursed out back or something. Oh, you uh, definitely be cursed out. That's the second <laughs> time this episode. You are definitely to be cursed out by people. <laughs> uh, but no, but all jokes aside, what you said right there um, is definitely extremely important. There are differences in not only how do we deal with the data, the importance of the data, but when it comes to the human resources, you know, IT is not security. Security is not IT. Even network engineering. And your developers, you know, they're all, they all serve different functions. And you, yes, you could, you could have some bleed. You could have some bleeding between the, the three or four. You could have them work together in tandem. But there has to be policies set in place for each that help designate responsibilities. But not only that, you know, kind of deal with policies. Those policies sometimes are overlooked. We need to make sure that they follow through with. The third misconception of data exfiltration is we're still operational, so we're fine. That's not true. That's not true. Just because you're still working, does not your company's still up and going and providing information does not mean you have a clean environment. Um, whatever way you know the, the hackers got in and whatever they're doing, just because they haven't shut you down doesn't mean you're good to go. Oh, yeah. Well, think about it like this. You are an adversary. You spent time and resources to compromise an environment. You know, your engagement is long-term. Okay, the one thing you do not want to do is cause such a distraction or ruckus that you're going to end up losing access. There may even be scenarios when attacker will update and patch your systems just to make sure that those systems stay online because that'll that'll maintain their persistence into the environment. I've seen it. In fact, I've even done it myself when I was a bad guy. Some of the best malware out there goes out there and cleans up your system all of all the other malwares before it infects you. <laughs> That's exactly right. I mean, a, a good example is going back to the early 2000s when you had the cold red worm that was infecting IIS servers around the world. And um, then you had someone release code blue that would scan those same systems, exploit them, install an update, and remove the cold red worm from the system. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's definitely been done before. But I'll tell you, there was an old joke that I remember. I'm not sure if it was Dave Attell or one of these these security guys have been around for a long time, and, and their joke was kind of like along the lines of, uh, do you know how you could tell that your network has been compromised? And the question is like, well, yeah, wh- how? Uh, your systems are running, you know, fine. <laughs> because the attacker is going to maintain your systems so that they can maintain persistence. Now, is that probably relevant today? Not so much. But nonetheless, I, I would still see attackers doing that today if they could. So in the last one, the last misconception is that lightning won't strike twice. Well, that's not right. 67% of cybercrime victims within the last year have been hit more than once, uh, and nearly 10% experienced 10 or more attacks. That stat kind of threw me off, Hector. 10% have experienced 10 or more attacks. Maybe you just got to shut it down if you're getting 10 or more attacks, but, you know, I, I kid. But some of these companies, <laughs> you know, these big companies, they're getting hundreds of attacks per day. Yeah, they do. I mean, we all are, right? The fact that we're on the internet right now as you and I are recording this, 
our IPs are being scanned by some bot somewhere, right? Um, we're all, all targets the moment we're connected to the internet. But now here's one thing that I, I really want to point out, and that is that I could understand why their organizations are getting hit over and over and over. Because as I've done, you know, hundreds or even thousands of pen tests or similar engagements, what I've seen is that you may have an old enterprise, a massive corporation. They've been around for a very long time. And because of that, they still have old legacy environments or old legacy systems still running. You know, it's not surprising for me to find an old Windows 7 system on an internal network. Really? Yeah. You've recently found one? How about any XP machines? You seen any XP lately? Absolutely. And recent. Yes. Now, what, what does that mean? What does that tell us? Does that say that the organization is irresponsible? Not necessarily. That or you know these organizations I've seen um, old endpoints on are companies that have been around for quite some time, and they're running proprietary or third-party software that require those environments. And because they require those environments, they're kind of they kind of have their hands tied behind their backs. Because for some, depending on the business, depending on the industry, there may not be an alternative for that third-party software that still runs on XP or seven or Windows two thousand. Okay. So I am not surprised about that statistic. Now, the question is, how do we move forward from here? And that's hard. Wasn't that out-of-date system and like and an old software running? Wasn't that really kind of where the ransomware towards hospitals started? Um, that They had like specialized human life-saving software or medicine distribution software, and it only ran on old machines? Yeah, Absolutely. Um, and that's pretty common for any of you that are in the, the healthcare industry or uh, work on healthcare systems at all. The one problem that a lot of these hospitals have is that there are third-party vendors that make some very good tools that still run on old environments. And you can't really do anything to upgrade them to like Windows 10 uh, without breaking the entire software. In some cases, the software is discontinued um, and they have a lifetime license that they're still using. And the alternatives either do not exist or are extremely expensive. So, yeah, there are elements of um, different industries. It's not only healthcare, it's also financial that have these problems. So now the question is, how do we go from here? You know, can these organizations start to develop alternatives internally? Can they justify the expense? Or can uh, a third-party development company say, you know what, that's going to be our niche. Our niche is to build products that will replace old archaic end-of-life systems. Well, you would have to get the healthcare providers to tell you what those systems are, which in most cases, because of policy, they probably won't tell you anyway. So we have a chicken and egg scenario that we have to kind of deal with. Is there any solution of running these out-of-date OSs with the, you know, if you have software that you need to run and it's got to go on XP, is there any security of running that on a, uh, in a virtual machine? Yeah. So there's, uh, there's a couple of takes on how you could approach this problem. Right. Well, the first one will be access controls. If you know that device is on your network, and second, uh, nobody aside from maybe three people need to access that device. Right. You could implement access controls that would block everyone else in your network from accessing those devices aside from those those three IPs or those three services. Okay. So that's one fix that you could do right now today. Okay. Now emulation is another approach. Okay, you could use emulation, but it would require human resources. It would require potentially reverse engineering the product to make sure that that product runs on an emulated environment. And so you start to mitigate potential attacks, potential. And then finally, you could use something like Zero Patch or similar. It's a great tool called Zero Patch that allows you to patch vulnerabilities or software or applications without actually applying a security patch from, let's say, Microsoft or similar. And you could use Zero Patch to kind of start patching systems so that even though they're end of life and they no longer have support, using that tool would theoretically help you secure that environment. But again, it's going to require some reverse engineering and you may even have to hire people to help you reverse engineer the software to go back to zero patch and ask them to help you develop patches. So yes, it's uh, there's, different, there's different directions here and you really have to kind of identify which one works best for your organization. Yeah, but I mean, it sounds like access controls really is a good, fast approach while you develop these other approaches. I agree. And this is what I tell my clients when I'm dealing with like a debrief. Um, 
yeah, you have an you have an end of life system. Yes, it is a third party vendor. You have no control over it. Over it. Can we can we implement some very tight access controls to kind of deal with the problem? Can you put this device on a DMZ? Can you put this device on you know a VLAN that's segmented from the rest of your network? And so once you start talking about these different ideas, the network engineers or developers or security personnel can start coming up with solutions. Yeah, that sounds like great advice. I'm glad you're out there giving that advice to your clients. So did I hear, Hector, that you got a phishing email this week? I did. I did get a phishing email this week. Oh, man. What caused that? <laughs> well, I was sitting here minding my business when I get an email from Namecheap saying that I have a package from with DHL that cannot be sent or accepted unless I log into the site and put in my credentials. Uh, by the way, I don't have DHL accounts. At least I don't think so. So I found it curious that I would have a Namecheap email and a DHL payload. And immediately my mind started buzzing. Like, wow, this is a phishing campaign. That's pretty insane. You weren't excited that you had a package coming to you? It's like Christmas all over again. (laughs) No, I don't have anyone sending me anything, uh, unfortunately. Aside from death threats sometimes. (laughs) <laughs> oh, well, um, that, that can be a fun package to get to. <laughs> Those are fun. Sure. <laughs> please do not send any death threats at questions at hackerinthefed.com. Please um, don't. Pretty yeah, please. I will just share those with my FBI friends. So if anybody sends those there, uh, you may get a knock at your door. So good luck. Uh, but do not send them. We, that's what we're saying it again. So so did you look into this? Uh, did you see what was causing you to receive this phishing email? Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, I immediately went to town kind of investigating the email. The first step for me was to look at the uh, the email headers and confirm that, yes, it indeed came from what it seemed like Namecheap by means of a third party. I would say MX or mail exchange provider or mail provider um, or service. Uh, In this case, with SendGrid. After a little bit of investigation, I got bored. I'll be honest with you. I I told you about it, and then I kind of moved on with my life. But the exciting part is as soon as I get on Twitter, I start people talking about it. And they started investigating and started looking into it. Um, I would say maybe hours later, Namecheap came up with a response. They posted on Twitter that, hey, yes, we're investigating a potential phishing campaign through our service. And um, I mean, you name it, a lot of folks were talking about it. It was a buzz. Yeah, so I saw Namecheap came out and said that they thought the compromise was done through SendGrid, who is their email handler. Uh, and that they believe the breach may have been related to the December report of the API keys of Mailgun and Mailchimp Chimp and SendGrid being exposed on mobile apps. Uh, did you see anything further on that? Or is that just an allegation? Or, or what do you think is the story behind that? Yeah, no, that's, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked because I, you know, I did look into it post, you know, post-mortem or whatever, after the fact. And it seems like, you know, what we saw there is an allegation. There was a lot of speculation as, as to what could have happened. For example, Namecheap could have been compromised or Sangre could have been compromised or a developer or an application somewhere at some point was compromised and a SendGrid key was compromised as a result and it was used for the phishing campaign. The point is that there's, there was many potential vectors as to how this could have happened. And I'm not entirely sure that both parties in this case actually know um, the source, at least not yet, or they haven't disclosed it entirely, right? So right now, there's a lot of spec- speculation as to what happened and how it happens. Yeah, it'll be interesting as that plays out, and we'll keep the audience uh, abreast of that situation. Let me ask you, uh, the DHL uh, connection to phishing emails, I mean, I worked a case, probably it goes back to at least 2015, and they used DHL as part of the phishing e- campaigns. Do we have any idea what what the connection is to DHL for in phishing? Yeah, so uh, I myself was curious about this topic because in my lifetime I've seen way too many DHL phishing campaigns and payloads. I had the same question, Chris. Why? <laughs> What's the purpose behind that? And so, kind of what led me to uh, uh, the answer was that at least in the like mid two thousands and maybe late two thousands. There were a lot of physical scams, like out of Nigeria and other places, where they would have folks talking to people here in the U.S., elderly folks. Um, they would do some social engineering. Uh, there's even a name for it, like love phishing or love something, where they would have someone fall in love with the person, with the, with, the, with the adversary, and then they would start to send 
stolen goods to that person's address and it would be forwarded through DHL or similar um, to, you know, the host country, right? So I thought that was pretty much it. Now, in 2023, I have no idea if that's still a thing. Uh, I'm sure it is. But I'm still curious as to why DHL is the main target rather than FedEx and UPS, which are, you know, equally big companies. Well, yeah, I know FedEx is globally, but maybe DHL is bigger outside of the United States. Here in the U.S., I I can't remember the last time I received a DHL package. I know that DHL is huge international. It's definitely bigger international than it is here. Yeah, so maybe it's the it's the easiest one to you know broad spectrum you know fishing campaigns against people outside the United States and you know it's still recognized here in the United States but maybe that's just it it's just it's easier and it's globally has a global recognition. Yeah. So well, we'll keep you guys updated as uh, this develops and kind of see what happens. Uh, Namecheap is saying that their systems weren't breached, uh, that it was outside of their uh, environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll see. We'll see how it comes out. So, Hector, I don't know if you saw what the Kansas City Chiefs did in the second half and was able to come back and uh, have victory in the Super Bowl. But because of that, uh, I get to hear an embarrassing story of yours. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm very interested to, uh, to to hear this story. I'll tell the listeners that I don't know what Hector is about to tell, um, but I have been excited all week to hear this story. Well, I, I tell you, folks, I've done plenty of cringy or embarrassing things in my life. Um, sometimes some of those things, some of those memories come back when I'm trying to lay down and your brain is just overactive. Like, hey, remember that time we did this? Um, and I, I will, I'll, I'll lose sleep for the next few hours. But even though I have kind of like a, a, a vast, I have a vast, a big pot of different stories to give you. I'm going to share a story of when I got one of my first jobs ever and completely embarrassed myself to the guy I was reporting to. And, um, and I lied. <laughs> and I lied and I felt like such a loser afterwards. So Uh-oh. let's hear this. Now, now, <laughs> I'm super excited now. That's a, that's a great intro. So one of my first jobs uh, was as an intern for a nonprofit organization here in New York City. So just guys, to give you guys some uh, context, I started my career working for nonprofits. I spent a lot of time working with nonprofits. And, you know, it's a great it's a great environment to work in and you're helping a lot of folks. So if you have spare time, give a nonprofit a look. They might have some cool things for you to do. But anyways, aside from that. So I get involved in a nonprofit in Brooklyn. And the entire purpose of the nonprofit organization is to help connect mentors and students together. Uh, mentors from like corporate environments or professionals and kind of, you know, maybe inspire kids um, that are less fortunate to to have access to people that um, are, are, are doing very well in their career paths. Okay. So I joined the nonprofits as a IT person, kind of like help desk. It was a small organization, maybe 12 employees. So it was, it was a relatively easy and chill job to kind of work with. The office for that organization was kind of like an open spaces office where there were like eight other nonprofits sharing the same workspace. And then you had one guy who was brilliant, brilliant, fantastic gentleman who (laughs) you could tell was bored of the job because he basically managed the IT needs for, I don't know, nine different nonprofits. And most of the kind of tickets he had to deal with was, hey, my printer's not working. Can you help me with that? Okay. So... Here's where it gets kind of bananas for me. I come in. It's my first position. I'm super excited. I'm very happy to be there. And the guy takes me under his wing. He's like, all right. He's like, okay, Hector, you have Linux experience. We have Linux servers here. They're very important. So you can't screw these up. I'm going to give you root access because I need to work on a big project. Do not do anything that I wouldn't do. <laughs> I'm like, okay, great. He gives me a couple of desktops. And back then I was a Unix nerd. So I immediately installed... Open BSD on one of my workspa- workstations, and I would use like s- secure CRT for my Windows machine to have tabs open for, of all the servers, including my Open BSD endpoint. Okay, so one day I have to, I, or I made the executive decision to be proactive and update my Open BSD system. I hop in a tab, I start updating packages, and I start you know doing a whole bunch of changes to the system, uh, modifying the the etc. profile etc. I decide to reboot the system. Interesting thing happens. 
this gentleman walks into my office and says, hey, uh, <clears throat> Hector, um, our main ticketing system is offline. Do you, do you know anything about that? Um, <laughs> were you working on that system today? I was like, no. I was actually working on my OpenBSD server. He was like, huh, okay. He knows that I fucked up. He knows it. But he didn't give me a hard time until he came back again. And says, well, you know, what's weird, Hector, is that I was able to recover the host. A, a ton of changes were made to packages that shouldn't have been updated. And I see a reboot command in the bash history file. Do you actually, do you actually happen to know who did that? Because as far as I know, it's only you and I in his office that has access to the server. And I looked at him straight in the eyes with a stone cold, serious stern face. And I said, no. And his eye twitched a little bit. And he said, okay, and walked away. I was devastated. I felt like the biggest dork on the planet. I modified and rebooted the wrong server. <laughs> uh, how long did you last at that job? I fucking left. I left like three weeks later. <laughs> because of that? I felt so embarrassed, man. I felt so embarrassed. Uh, did you ever talk to that guy ever again? I tried to, and he was just, he was, he, he just looked at me like I was a complete idiot. And I, I have to agree from his perspective, I probably seemed that way. Mm. So, well, I mean, it, that's an embarrassing story and it caused you to leave your job and all that, but it's a good lesson learned for the listeners. You know, uh, you know, don't lie. There's no reason to lie about it. Especially you walk in and he says, you know, you know, you have some experience this, you know, might be your first job and all that, you know, you're fucking up. You know, it's much easier to say, yo, dude, I just messed that up. Uh, I need some help. Yeah. That, see, that's my that, that's my takeaway as well. Right. I from that experience. And you guys have heard me say this a, a few times on episodes. I don't mind being wrong. If I'm wrong, I'm willing to learn and be better and kind of take have takeaways from that. Um, in this story, yes. Lying to the guy and not working with him immediately. Like, oh, my God, I messed up, man. I'm sorry. Come on. Let's work together to fix this. Um, I just made the situation so bad that I personally felt guilty. And I said, you know what? I think I just need to leave. And I did. But yes, that was such a cringy moment. Because when I told him no, you could see like his left eye start to twitch. You know what I mean? <laughs> I oh. know exactly the pressure. And then like what? how much longer were you at work that day after lying to him? I left at 4 o'clock on the dot. <laughs> I broke out. <laughs> And I just walked home. I walked over to Brooklyn Bridge, and I was like, okay, <laughs> I need to disappear for like a week. At what point did you think about jumping off the bridge? Uh, during that walk. <laughs> yeah. so, um, well, I'm glad you told that story. Thank God I didn't have to tell mine. I was going to tell a story about pissing my pants while executing a search warrant, but thank God I won. <laughs> <laughs> well, Hector, another great episode. I enjoyed talking with you. For our listeners out there, if you have any questions uh, that you want Hector and I to answer, please reach out to us at questions at hackerinthefed.com. New episodes every Thursday. Uh, download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hector, fun conversations. Lots of things happen out there in, in cybersecurity. Uh, glad I won our bet and you had to tell an embarrassing story and I did it. <laughs> I bet. Uh, and I look forward to talking to you next week. All right, my friend. It's been a pleasure as always. Cheers. Cheers, brother. 